giant robot smashing into other giant robots. Hello and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein and I'm here today with the one and only Matt Knox. How are you, Matt? I'm doing fine, thanks. Awesome. Uh, so Matt, I was wondering if you could maybe start by telling me what an average day looks like for you. Ah, uh, wow, that's a really good question. So the... So Twitter is really has a, a really extraordinary degree. It gives us a, an extraordinary degree of autonomy. So if I don't feel like coming in, like if I don't have any meetings and feel like working from home, I can do that. Mm. Although I mostly come into the office every day anyway. Um, so I get in sometimes, or I get in sometime between like nine thirty and ten thirty or something like that. And um, I, I work right now on Twitter's university team. Um, which is the team that teaches new Twitterers, like new tweets as they come in, teaches them things like where do the tweets live? Uh, how do we, when there's a problem, how do we debug it and things like that? Hmm. It turns out that there, with any company past somewhere around 500 people, you need to have a team that teaches like the stuff that is specific to the company. Right. So I'm on that team. Um, a couple days a week, I will be coming in and teaching classes. So teaching people like where do we store the tweets and so forth. And then the rest of the time, I'll be doing more normal engineering work. Um, and that will look like working on the app that we use to schedule classes that like for not just for the for new new people, but also for continuing education. Mm-hmm. And then in addition, I'll get to do work. Uh, the best part of my job is I get to spend half of my time working anywhere in Twitter's stack that I want to go right now mm. because I have to stay current in basically everything to be able to teach all the things. Mm. So that's basic. So then we, then we have like, you know, there's normal things like there's a lunch break and we have, we have this amazing lunch here. Um, and usually I'll stay and eat dinner here, work, go back to work a little bit and then go home sometime around like maybe seven at the earliest and maybe eight or nine um, on a pretty normal day. Mm-hmm. So, so that job sounds like someone uh, a good position for someone who likes to do a lot of things and has a little bit of uh, ADD type behavior. Yeah, yeah, it's totally true. Um, yeah, I mean, I've I I love teaching, but I don't want to be a full time teacher all like all the time. Mm-hmm. So back, uh, Dan. The reason Dan knows me, mm-hmm. uh, the reason Dan Croak knows me, is that back in, when I was in Cambridge. I was teaching all these classes for teaching essentially Ruby to programmers who didn't yet know Ruby. Right. Um, and I, I love having a little bit of teaching in my life, but I wouldn't want to do it full time. Mm-hmm. So it's really great for me that I get to do teaching and I get to do engineering anywhere I want. And, and like the, the, the level of opportunity you have to reach a large number of users is just unparalleled, mm-hmm. right? Like I have, I, it has literally been the case that somebody said that there was a problem with Twitter as a product in a meeting, right? They were they were saying that there's a particular element of the sign up process that was a problem, mm-hmm. and I fixed the code during the meeting, and the next day I got like got it all pro style and wrapped up in tests and things, and it was out to the world by Friday, mm. right? And that, that was that week. Like you don't as a for me at least that's just like that's crack, mm-hmm. like. Nothing better than being able to touch the entire world after so short a time. Yeah, absolutely. So I got to yeah. say, I, I in researching you for this podcast, I, I wish every single guest did uh, or what you have done, which is you have a, a repo on GitHub of essays. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and essays yeah. is a strong word for some of them. Sometimes it's like a one word, looks like a stub, like, I should write about this someday. 
Yeah, 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 totally. It's actually I, that happened because I'd forgotten a, I, that that came about because I was talking to some friends, um, and they said, my, "I come from a family of storytellers," and one of them was like, "Oh my god, your stories are really entertaining, but obviously not true." <laughs> and then he lived through one of the things that became one of my stories, and he heard me tell it, and he said, "Wow." You actually told it about honestly. Mm. And I told him, yeah, you know, they're all basically true, right? Like I um I some I like edit for delivery, but that's basically it. I don't usually make stuff up. Sure. Um and and it, I it turned out that I had forgotten a few of them. And so I said, okay, I just have to write all these down. Mm-hmm. So that so I went through in like a day and wrote down the stubs of all the stories that I felt like were interesting and were likely that uh, things that I would likely forget. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I'm I'm actually starting as a project this year. I'm going through and writing them out. Mm. Um, some of my family members asked me to write out a few of them. Like um, I broke my leg once jumping off a movie theater balcony mm-hmm. uh, to play a prank on my then girlfriend. And the story of the hilarity that ensued is one that my family really likes, and they'd like me to write down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it, it was great to be able to open up like 40 different like little <laughs> portals yeah. into your head and yeah. just be like, okay, I'm getting the picture. Um, and exactly. so th- there's a bunch of, a, a ton of uh, Twitter stuff that we could talk about. And I want to talk about a lot of that, but I actually want to like rewind a little bit in terms of sure. your life timeline. So you and I have actually met and you'd be forgiven for not remembering. Uh, so I'm pretty sure we met at a Boston Lisp meetup. Oh, geez. Like, yeah, yeah, probably yeah, like... nine years ago or seven yeah, years ago. Yeah. And I remember at the time you stood out to me because you said, I think I'm probably, um, I think I've deployed more Lisp into the world than anybody else out there. And there was yeah. a pretty good story going along with that. I was wondering if you could sort of retell that. Uh, yeah, actually, I can, actually, I've done the research now. I can make a much stronger claim. I have deployed more scheme runtimes than the entire rest of the world combined by almost an order of magnitude. <laughs> um, so uh, I... I have had a, my father always tells me that I'm walking proof that it's better to be lucky than smart. Hmm. Um, And so I've had this really wandering career path. And for a while I was in New York and um, I was working for, I I went to work for this, this adware company. They were in the business of essentially going out and finding like a cool screensaver and saying, Hey, uh, people on the internet, would you like to have this screensaver? You can have it for free if you install our ad client. And um, and so the, the the they initially brought me in to analyze their distribution funnel. I think you would basically it would be what you would call growth hacking nowadays. Sure. You'd be saying, okay, let's analyze the analytic. Let, let's analyze like what does the installation funnel look like? What's the churn look like? What are the causes of churn and so forth? Um, they eventually determined that the biggest cause of that the biggest like the high order bit in the number of active users they had was churn and specifically the churn was largely caused by a particular bit of russian malware um and so they th- there's this bit of russian malware like when i say malware it was like it was actually like a virus that would go in and wipe your hard drive basically um so they said hey can you can you write some code to go to find and destroy this particular bit of malware? And I said, uh, yes, I can definitely do that. Um, it was, in fact, not true that I knew how to do that. I had done a tiny bit of C and no Windows ever. But over the course of the next two or three weeks, I learned enough C and enough Windows that I was able to write something that got, went in and pulled this thing out. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was cool. 
and it got them a pretty big win in terms of in terms of uh, their number of active users. And so they said, well, why don't you figure out what the next worst bit of malware affecting the people who have our software is, and then write something to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. And so that was cool. But after about the third one, it occurred to me that there were lots of commonalities between the various things that I was trying to trying to root out, right? Mm-hmm. And it made sense to have uh, to sort of there's a design pattern called alternate hard and soft layers, where you'll it's um it it comes from an I think it comes from analogy with Japanese sword making where they take soft steel and very hard steel and have them in alternate layers and then they fold it many many times. That's what gives Japanese samurai swords katana their characteristic really um, good sharpness and strength and durability. So. The alternate hard and soft layers in this case means you build a you build a library, typically in a statically typed language that does something that you need, but then you script its functionality in a dynamically typed language. Hmm. So this is really common for Ruby people, right? Like Twitter itself, incidentally, does a lot of this, right? Um, in the old days, almost all of the code that actually ran when you made a request to Twitter was written in C because key par- parts of our infrastructure were written in C. But mm-hmm. everything was being coordinated from Ruby. So there was like a soft layer of Ruby and then a hard layer of C. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I, um, so I needed to make a – my, my soft layer in this case for this adware company was just a configuration language, like a, an arbitrary format that looks a little bit like YAML. And uh, so we would say this, you know, run this library function with this argument and then go somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. But the problem was pretty quickly you start wanting to – Whenever you have configuration formats like that, they always end up evolving towards Turing completeness, right? And then you end up with some horrendous, like, god-awful language that never really was intended to be Turing complete, but now is because you added loops and ifs, and then, you know, you're off to the races. Sure. Uh, so, so I said, I think this is actually the, probably the most mature engineering decision I have ever made in terms of, like, how good an engineer I was versus how good the decision was. I said, you know, if I'm going to have a, if I'm going to have a Turing complete language anyway, I should just get a pre-existing Turing language and embed it. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, so that's actually a really, that turned out to be a really good idea. And I said, well, I need something tiny, right? Like it has to be order of like less than a hundred K Right, and there's no language to, to a reasonable approximation. There is no language runtime that's that small. Mm. Lua is widely known to be tiny, right? But it's quite a bit bigger than that. Certainly, Ruby is megabytes, and Java is like huge, and there's all these things. So I, um, but I knew Scheme a little bit, and and I was a total Paul Graham fanboy. So I said, okay, I'm going to find the smallest Scheme I can find, and I got one called Tiny Scheme, and then I then we started shipping this tiny scheme down as an interpreter that that would then call home and fetch instructions written in scheme that would then go through and make it do make use the library that i had written to kill all the stuff that we wanted to get rid of mhm so uh, this then got shipped down on every single install and again periodically later on and every time it would come down it would you know Pull, call home for it. Would look around on the local machine, see what bad stuff was there, send that information home, pull back a list of instructions of what to kill. It would go kill everything, and then it would say, "Okay, now I'm done." And it would clean. It would clean itself up. It would delete itself. 
it would get rid of all the various things. Huh. It turns out it's actually really hard to make a file, to make a program delete its own executable. Hmm. So was there a point, uh, reading your resume, it looked like there was maybe a point where you started using a few of these uh, vulnerabilities or, or sort of darkish design patterns for your own <laughs> software? Um, yeah, there was a, um, so the, 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 the team, so the, my efforts had met with so much success that they spun up an entire team around me. Um, this was around when Harry Potter was coming out and somebody called us the dark arts team. Mm. And so, uh, we, we had this, we had this motto, uh, DFDRDA, which was don't fuck with direct revenue, dark arts, which was because we would, my team would routinely go around and just like wipe out, um, all sorts of various kinds of malware. It was in fact, interesting. Um, interestingly, it was the case for, I don't know, like six months or something that there were particular strains of malware for which the most effective way to get rid of them was to install one of the screensavers from direct revenue. (laughs) And as a side benefit, we would come in and wipe out all the other, all the other like stuff on your system. Yeah. Um, so yeah, eventually that company got sued out of existence and I started doing rails right after that. Hmm. So you, was that at Cermo where you were doing the rails? Uh, it was actually before that at a company called Django.com, which okay. somewhat confusingly was written entirely in rails. Mm. Um, my Python friends are still kind of annoyed with me for that in some cases, because our, our CEO would go around all, it was a very energetic fundraiser would go all around New York saying, Hey, I've got this thing, Django. Uh, this, this website Django and it's written entirely in rails. It's going to be the best thing ever. And then when my for other friends would go around and say, Hey, we're building a social network for dogs and we're using this wonderful thing, Django, these VCs would say, Oh, Django, isn't that built in rails? Why don't you just build in rails instead? Right. Um, and being like, that would, that would annoy them greatly. Yeah. So, so you, uh, you did a lot of, so it sounded like you kind of got your teaching start possibly, uh, by teaching Ruby to people. Yeah, that's right. You have a section about Sermo where you did a lot of that. I taught a bunch before that. I started teaching in college in teaching chemistry, and then I taught after a terribly failed startup. I did a bunch of teaching for Kaplan and Princeton Review and such. Mm -hmm. Um, Then after that, but then after that, I didn't teach for a while. Then I started teaching Ruby in New York, and then I taught a lot of Ruby up in Boston um, with Sermo, Mm -hmm. which is uh, which was a sort of a, a. experts exchange for doctors kind of thing mm-hmm. um so i that was where i met basically all the boston ruby crew that you guys know yeah and so you you took a really large uh, j2ee code base and then moved it over to ruby <laughs> yeah. on rails right yeah that's right it was like a sun potemkin village really it had every jo- it had every technology you can possibly imagine from sun like it had struts and also spring and it had like hibernate and it had like all the various things um and it was uh, it was a total disaster. I went in and I was given three tasks by their CEO. One was help convert this gigantic Java code base to Ruby. Uh, two, teach pe- pe- teach people within the office Ruby, and three, grow the Ruby community so that as the company achieved world domination, we'd be able to hire Ruby coders in Boston. Mm-hmm. And um, the yeah, those things worked, right? Like the company ended up being basically all Ruby later on, uh, although not entirely, not at, not even, not mostly from my efforts, but like from all the coders there. Um, I did teach some Ruby to the coders there, and we did a really good job, I think, of growing the Ruby community in Boston. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is quite quite strong these days. 
Yeah, it's huge. It's really impressive. Mm -hmm. Like the Boston Ruby group is like over 100 for the the monthly meetups pretty regularly. Yeah, Yeah, it's really cool. Um, And happened fast too, because even when I started, when I first started going a few years ago, it was like, you know, 25 people, maybe 30 people. Yeah, it really came up pretty quickly. I'm really, um, it's it's one of the great successes of sort of the Ruby communities. Yeah. Are you doing, so you mentioned, you touched on a little bit of scheme. Are you doing any Lisp these days? Um, a little bit personally, but not um, not a tremendous amount professionally. Twitter does have a little bit of closure in house. Mm-hmm. We have um, we bought a company that employed a guy named Nathan Mars. Um, I can't remember offhand the name of the company. I'm sorry, but it was uh, but the, he used closure to write this framework called Storm, which is a re- sort of a real time Hadoop. Um, and we use that fairly extensively internally. And not only have, do we use it, we continue to build things on top of it. Mm. Uh, one of our really important, one of our most, I guess, most influential open source projects is uh, Summingbird, mm. which is a Scala wrapper around Hadoop and um, and Storm. And so it allows you to write some Scala that will, it'll allow you to define a MapReduce job in Summingbird, which can then run either in batch on Hadoop or in real time on Storm. Hmm. So I, I don't I don't work Absolutely. with those technologies at that sort of scale. What is a real time Hadoop used for? Uh, well, so Hadoop is MapReduce basically, right? Mm-hmm. So Google's MapReduce paper like shook the computing world when it came out back way back in the day, but there was no actual implementations and no one could do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite some time after that, they quite some time after that, Yahoo released um, Hadoop, which is essentially an open source implementation of MapReduce. So the the thing with MapReduce though is that it's a batch job. So you'll take you'll you'll say like, oh, let me count all the inter- all the URLs on the internet, and you'll have chunks of you you'll have chunks of web pages on a zillion different machines, and you'll send a, you'll say each of those machines count up how many URLs you see, mm-hmm. and then send home some digested information about what the what those URLs are, and then we'll have something that will run over that and count. All the, and produce a total count. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what MapReduce does, and it's always a it's all, it, but it's always really long latency, right? Like it'll take hours or days to, for a Hadoop job to run. By contrast, Storm runs in real time, so it's really good for stuff like uh, over the last hour, who is the most mentioned person on Twitter, mm-hmm. right? Like that's that's the kind of thing for which Storm really excels, mm-hmm. and you can actually also do things. It's also really good for detecting trends because ideally you'd like to say, um, so when there's, I don't know, when there's, when there's some event, whether planned or unplanned, um, and you see lots of tweets going through, you want to detect that that trend is happening more than it normally would, right? Mm. Like Justin Bieber gets mentioned all the time. That's like, there's like a normal, there's a pretty high base level of interaction around that. And maybe Rasputin does not get mentioned very much. So if suddenly Rasputin goes from from three mentions an hour to twenty mentions an hour, even though that's much less than than Bieber, mm. that means something's going on with Rasputin, mm. right? Or for just to, to pick a random example. Mm-hmm. So so Hadoop would be terrible for that, but Storm is really good because Storm operates in real time. Gotcha. Interesting. What other? Uh... What other mind-blowing stuff can you tell us about the uh, the inside the walls at Twitter that we should know about? Um, I think actually, actually, there's a um, there's a really I think the biggest thing is how big an impact like normal people can have. There's a there's a really wonderful Steve Jobs quote that 
he says the most remarkable thing about the world is that everything you see around you is made by people who are not that much different than you. And that means that you can change the world too. Hmm. And it's difficult uh, it's difficult to see that in the world sometimes, but it's really easy to see here. So when the the reason I took the reason I, I took this interview on such short notice was the last time Dan asked me to do something, it was to speak at this uh, conference you guys threw called D eight. Mm. I think that stands for developers, 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 designers, 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 yes. something like that. Yep. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. So he asked me to go speak at that conference, and at that conference. Uh, I couldn't go, but he said, I really want you to do this. Please just Skype in. And so I did. And I met this random, young, slightly awkward coder guy uh, at that conference and talked to him about what he was, what his career was and what he, where he wanted to go. And he ended up coming to Twitter. On his first week, literally his first week, he wrote a, an experiment that became that was noticed by and then featured in TechCrunch, right? He put the if you look on Twitter right now and you look on profile pages, mm-hmm. you can actually see a tweet box that allows you to tweet at like Lady Gaga, right? You go to Lady Gaga's homepage and, or her Twitter page, and you'll you'll see a box where you can tweet at her, right? Um, so it was literally the case that this person that that this intern who was I think at the time a sophomore in college was able in his first week of work able to get noticed by a you know a pretty important uh, tech publication. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of a weird thing. I mean, other things that are really weird are just like how quickly sometimes things get done, right? Like one of the things that I've one of the things that's been really interesting at Twitter is watching the port the which is still ongoing from uh, from all Ruby on Rails all Ruby on Rails to a mix of Ruby on Rails and Scala and a few other things. And one of the pieces that one of the pieces that I got involved with for that was we have this thing that tells users, hey, you um, you don't have a profile photo. You should have one of those because that will make more people know who you are. And it's just a good thing. Uh, And so at the time I started writing that, we were like, whoa, this is going to get just like a huge number of requests per second. It's going to be requested every time somebody asks for a page on Twitter. So this is just blistering traffic, clearly. We need to write this in the JVM because it'll never scale otherwise. Um, and so I started working on it. It was really, really hard at the time to build services in Scala. And so someone said to me at some point, you know, you should just try prototyping it in Ruby and see how it goes. And I wrote the prototype in like a day. And we actually deployed it and then ran it up to, a, ran it up to the entire user base of Twitter. And it was fine. Hmm. The entire thing, just like it just worked. And it, it, when I say it just worked, I, I mean it worked so reliably that I left it alone for I think six months or a year, and it never like never caused an incident. Never did we have to come back and fix anything. It's hmm. really remarkable. Hmm. There's a lot of things like that at Twitter that are just really strange, right? Like it's, it's strange that you can write something in an afternoon that will affect hundreds of millions of users, and then it just like you can just leave it and it keeps working in forever. It's, mm. it's really strange. Mm. So I want to I want to switch topics quickly to a a, a couple sure. of things that I I stole from your essays slash blog. Oh, yeah. Um. So you talked about uh, portfolios for programmers, as in like yeah. a collection of work that you've done. 
And you had a nice little anecdote that I want to share, just quoting, which is, this guy came to work on my team, had an enormous library of carefully tuned C, re-implementing essentially the whole of libc because he thought Windows libc was bloated and slow. We hired him on the basis of his interview, but had we seen his library, we probably would have just lashed him to a desk and had him start immediately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. And I, I think there's, I think this, this portfolio is actually exists for everybody. Managers too. Mm-hmm. So for managers... Uh, I think there's another essay on that same site, uh, The Things They Carry. Uh, I think that's actually from the one you were, you were quoting, maybe. But there's engineering managers have this, too, in that they, an engineering manager will have like a, a, like a contrail of people behind him right. that will come into whatever job they go into next. Right. And I think when you're, I think actually when you're looking at engineering managers, you should evaluate them not so much on their personal like interview capabilities, mm-hmm. but rather on just like what are the people that follow them. Um, it's been re- it's been amazing how how much better a predictor that is of how someone's going to be in a company. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, you're right. And developers do the same thing too. Developers, at least most of the best ones that I know, will frequently bring their work with them from place to place. Um, and this is actually a really remarkable thing. It's, this is something that's, that's a, much, a much bigger deal in recent years. This is like the magic of open source for me, is that in the past, the overwhelming majority of all work that we as developers do lived and died inside some company, mm. right? Like it just, it, 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 it never saw the, saw the light of day. Whereas now you bring things with you from place to place. And that's just an amazing thing. Um. This also means that this also means that developers, particularly ones that are young in their career, should bias extremely hard towards companies that let them do their work in an open source fashion. Hmm. Right? Yeah. Like this is something that I very very few college like, like new grads that I've met actually understand how important this is. Right. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting, and I'm not sure that gets talked about a lot actually. I don't think it does. And I think that, I, I mean, the, the, you, I think a lot of people realize that it's a good idea to go to a great company rather, like, I'd rather take, were I a new grad, I would rather take uh, a kind of junior role at a really awesome company mm-hmm. than take a very high paid role at like an insurance company where you were going to be the guy writing wind forms or something. Right. Or, or, or generally being a coder at a place that doesn't do coding primarily. But I think very, very few people realize how important it is to do to to bias towards open source work, and I think that's really unfortunate because it really the the degree to which your career can be jump started by getting to work early on open source stuff is really shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy who started the same day as me, Larry Gadea, he uh, he literally had a like he worked on a deploy system within Twitter that used BitTorrent to distribute the source code of Twitter to the various machines. And this like got open sourced and was used by a bunch of people. And this actually changed his life to the extent that it got him an O one visa, the, the Nobel prize winner visa. It's this, 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 this visa for aliens of extraordinary ability. Wow. Uh, and he got this, got this visa because he had written this, crazy thing this crazy thing that used BitTorrent to shuttle source code around data centers yeah when uh when people i saw so i talk to a lot of newer ruby people that they're often trying to like become professional rails developers and i'm always telling them to start a blog because it's sort of like you know the the open source yeah. equivalent of writing on, on the writing side yeah yeah totally true 
And I think that that's, yes, every, I mean, everybody should start, everyone should start a blog. Everybody should have a GitHub. Um, I think something that we don't do often enough is uh, deliberate practice as coders. Like I, I think every coder should pick a small manageable thing that they think they can write in half an hour and write it every day mm. for like a month. Mm-hmm. This is the, and write it in different styles. Um, I've done this with Conway's Game of Life, where I'll I'll say I'm going to write Conway's Game of Life in a very functional style, and then I'm going to write it in a very object oriented style. Yeah, and and you've run a code retreat where that's kind of the exercise, right? Yeah, that's Corey right. Haynes's code retreat. Yeah. yeah, 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 that's right. It was really interesting, right? Like some people do it. People end up doing it in some really crazy ways. Like I've seen it done once entirely as a monkey patch on uh, as a monkey patch of a bunch of methods monkey patched into the array class in ruby sure yeah um, yeah yeah why not yeah i'm a, I'm a big believer in that like it's i i find it's surprising how i can watch a, a lot of like a video on something and my total understanding is you know five percent and then when i try to go off and implement it it's like it, that's when it really happens the learning really happens during that point yeah and you learn i think there's a particular kind of learning you do get by doing something a lot of times too yeah you really you, I mean, you really get to understand something well that way. Yeah, I have a funny experience with this, which is I'm I'm teaching myself closure right now, and so I started yeah. doing a, like a tic tac toe kata, basically, you know, trying to get sure. tic tac toe going with an AI. And uh, I'm new to the language, so I was struggling. It taking me a long time, and so I, I, for fun, just looked around to see if anyone else had done this. And I found a video on YouTube of someone, and he just sort of starts off down the road and like does this so quickly and with you know so many good decisions being made like really fast. And I was like, oh, kind of discouraged almost, like how how easy this person had done this. And then yeah. I actually uh, found a blog post later by the same the same guy saying, you know, after my twelfth time of trying the tic tac toe kata, I felt like I really had it. And so here's the video. And I was like, oh, really okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I couldn't yeah. I couldn't believe how quickly it was just like you know there were no missteps more or less. It was like he had like one one bug that he didn't quite catch yeah. and like no bad decisions. I was just like, oh, how am I going to get to this point? Yeah. Well, I mean, so the I mean, the answer is you get the get there the same way a river defe- finds this like the lowest path to the sea, right? Mm-hmm. You just you try it once and you go all sorts of wandering all over the place, and then you do it again and again and again. And every time you sort of wear away, and that's true both in your understanding of the problem and also in sort of the the neural pathways in your brain that help you to make these kinds of decisions. Yeah, I think that the practicing is. I would. I think you will be a you'll be become a better programmer faster if you write the same problem twelve times than if you write twelve different problems one time each. Interesting. Yeah, that that's maybe a wrong claim, and I think it's almost certainly wrong in the in the very in the very extreme case, mm-hmm. like a developer who'd only ever written tic tac toe over and over and over again for their entire life probably wouldn't be the greatest developer in the world. Yeah, but they but I think that doing Doing things more than once is something that we as developers almost never do, and I think that's to our detriment. Yeah, and that's interesting because it's that feels a little bit unique to development because if you go take piano lessons, you will play the same, not even song, but measure that over. Scales. Yeah, yeah all, 40 all times time. until it becomes this you know, second nature. Yeah, that's right. And and we don't do that. We don't we I think that's one of the that's one of the few best practices that I that I know of that has not really caught on. Like pair programming is kind of like, there's no need to evangelize pair programming, at least in the Ruby community now, right? Sure. Like test-driven development, sure, everybody basically does that. Pair programming, yeah, everybody does that. Mm. Um, but deliberate practice, like repetitive deliberate practice of the same thing mm-hmm. and doing it in different ways, 
that almost never happens yeah hmm. there's a so I, I actually i wrote a blog post about this years ago um where i was talking about like the fundamentals of learning things and one of the reasons or i think basically the reason that you pra- that you play the same sections of the piano piece over and over again is to free your mind from the fundamentals of what your hands are doing so yeah. like i'm not thinking like now play this note now play this note now play this note all that is happening almost completely automatically which lets me think about music and like shape and making a line and causing an emotional response and all these higher level things and i I think you can bring that same thing to programming i think you're right and i think that the and i think it you can you could conceivably get to that place in music by never playing the same thing twice but i bet it would be a lot harder yeah and i think it's a lot harder for us interesting so maybe more than like additional practice problems we need like a practice problem and then sort of like six different variants on it like now do now do it again but don't you know don't have any ifs now do it again but you know don't return anything if you look in my if you look at my github i actually did this with conway's game of life okay um and i did it in as i said a bunch of different styles in a bunch of different languages too i think i've got i can't remember exactly what languages it was in offhand but i know i did ruby for sure i'm pretty sure i did javascript um i did it in yeah as i did it in monkey patch like all monkey patched like all in super object oriented style i think i did it once in the um thoughtworks like super strict oo design way where they say you can't net you can't do else's on your ifs and you can only go one level nesting each in all your things and hmm. yeah I mean, I, i've done it in a bunch of different ways and i think that that I think that is a really valuable way to do it. Mm-hmm. I'm, I think I'm going to start doing it again, actually. Yeah, me too. I like that a lot. So, so we, I, think, I think we've kind of distilled two interesting ideas here. Uh, one yep. is the sort of repeated practice of a yep. single topic. Yep. And, oh, and also uh, making sure you work somewhere where you can uh, release what you're doing into the world. And so you can sort of bring it with you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, a, it, it's funny. It's, it's, that, that's true. It's it's funny. I didn't. It didn't occur to me how big a deal this was. Um, at, at how big a deal this particular policy that Twitter has was until fairly recently. But we have this thing for. We've had this thing for a long time. We don't really publicize it at all. But our, our we have a um, a side project policy where you can just email the general counsel and your manager, and they'll tell you whether a project is competitive or not. Right? Like you could say, oh, I want to build a social CRM app and they'll be like, Oh yeah, that's nothing at all to do with Twitter. Totally work on that as much as you want. And we disclaim any, any ownership in it as long as you don't use our time or our machines or our facilities. Yeah. Um, and whereas a lot of places they just say, yeah, we just, we own anything you, anything you do. Yeah. And that can be a real point of contention. Yeah, totally. I wouldn't work at such a place. Right. Awesome. What else should we talk about? What haven't we covered that you should you want to throw out there? I don't know. Um, huh. I think so. Like the the, I think sort of the trajectory of the people you see joining someplace is some is another thing that I that I haven't seen talked about a lot. Hmm. Like when I uh, when I was at when I was at Sermo in Boston, I was going to lots of Ruby conferences, and the people attending Ruby conferences in like 2007 were by and large really early adopter types, right? And I said, wow, this is amazing. These people are great. I love going to conferences like this. Um, and they're on average better than the coworkers than, or more interesting and better coders, more passionate than the people I, I see in my day to day. And when I first came to Twitter, I sat in a row 
that was entirely people who could headline any Ruby conference anywhere in the world ever, right? Um, like Evan Weaver and Nick Callen were in the same row as me in mm-hmm. my first day, and that was just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And so I said, wow, this is amazing. This is better than being at the best speaker's table at the best Ruby conference ever. But it's going to, and it'll be great now, and it'll be keep being great until like six months from now once the bozos start showing up. But what it turned out was that because Twitter, Twitter was able to hire such great people, we didn't end up having that bozo moment, mm-hmm. right? We hired, so we bought great startups that, that like we got Nathan Mars that way. And, um, and we got the, these amazing people from, from various companies like Google and Facebook and wherever. And as a result, the, the quality of people hasn't diminished that much. I think that's something else that developers, that particularly young developers early in their career should look, should look at, mm. not just how are the people there now, but what kinds of people are interested in going there? Because that will predict what the people are, what the the average person at that place is going to be like, mm-hmm. you know, a month, or, a month or two months or three months or six months later, and that's going to determine how long you want to stay at that place. Right. And that's why I've been at Twitter for like four and a half years. The, the leading indicator. Yeah, I think yeah, it is, and it and it's probably. I mean, I'm not a VC, but. That's probably also a pretty good leading indicator on whether the company is going to work. But it's definitely, as a developer, it's a leading indicator of whether it's a place I want to work at. Awesome. Well, yeah. I think I think that's a pretty good place to stop. It's been awesome talking to you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So we're going to link to your blog and your GitHub and all that. So I, I recommend there's some really interesting stuff on there. It, it's you can tell that your blog has like zero style sheets. <laughs> it's all yeah. like Times New Roman and pure HTML and like a bunch of flat text files. The worst thing ever, but it, yeah. And, and yet, you know, it loads insanely fast. It, uh, <laughs> yeah. It's perfectly cacheable. <laughs> yeah, that's totally true. Yeah, so uh, that's, when I, that's when I was like, yeah, this is, you can kind of, has like a hardcoreness to it. You're just like, I don't have no time for CSS. <laughs> Absolutely right. Need for speed. Yep. So and check that. So check that out. Check out also that essays repo. It's fun poking around there and just kind of like seeing somebody else's brain dump. It's just a kind of a, a guilty pleasure. So check that out. Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. If you'd like to access those show notes, you can go to thoughtbot.com/slash/giantrobots/slash/82. Thanks for listening.